Hello and welcome to the Pink Owl. My name is Henry Kathman, and joining me is fellow doll historian Emma Corey. You know, that's a very lo- lofty title to bestow upon me, but um, it, I feel like I'm more of a, a doll history sponge, as in uh, you provide the, the muddy, soppy water, and I'm going to be the one that's going to, you know, be soaking it up and spreading it around as you do. Oh, well, in that case, Emma, I hope you're ready to get wet and wild with all the info I'm going to be spreading around. I'm sopping it all up. Just sopping it all up, just gushing with all the fluids of historical literacy and biographical information. Is that not the main goal of these kind of history podcasts but to be the sponges of the world i guess we'll have to see what our listeners think about this so yeah we're going to be doing another episode of behind the barbie if you listen to our last episode we discussed the sordid tale of build lily the german sex doll that well sex doll is not a good way of describing it uh the german pinup doll that German doll was that comic. was sexy, so uh, German men back in the days could uh, look at her and be like, Awuga, or whatever the German translation yeah. of that would be. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit more about a certain lady in the realms of Barbie, because as we noted in that episode, Bill Lily had a modest amount of success. Uh, mostly as a novelty product, but on a fateful European trip that was done by Ruth and Elliot Handler, accompanied by their children, uh, Barbara and Kenneth, Ruth stumbled upon the Build Lily doll and had been inspired to go into business and create the Barbie doll, as we know today. Right, I'm going to stop you but... really quick, so... Barbie was named after her daughter, Barbara, and was Ken named yes. after her son, Kenneth? Yes, yes. And Barbie and Ken are like, maybe? Yeah, maybe. yeah, I... <laughs> mm, that might be one of those areas where, uh, best not to read into that one, I imagine... Best not to think about it too much. Yeah, I imagine that was more a innocent kind of tribute to their kids yeah, rather than... Yeah, still kind of... Still, yeah, a little bit questionable. I wonder, I wonder how Barbara and Kenneth felt that later on. Well, that might be something that we might get into a little bit later, because, yeah, today I want to discuss the story of Ruth Handler. Some consider the original girl boss, as she was one of the founders of Mattel and is largely credited as being the creator of Barbie. Something that was not often discussed, but is partially the reason why Mattel was such a big success. But we will get to that in a moment. But yeah, Emma, what do you know about Ruth Handler as a person? Uh, practically nothing, except that she uh, created Barbie and was a, a lady back in the day probably wore some suits. I have a, you know, we did have the episode and then we did, I've seen a few kind of documentaries about like the development of Barbie and where she kind of came from. As for Mattel as a company, I'm not so familiar with it. 
So you don't know about the embezzlement charges? Uh, no, no, I do not. But, you know, I love a good embezzlement. I, I love uh, a good fraud, so I'm excited. Well, I think we'll be starting our story a little bit further back from even the formation of Mattel. Because when it comes to the world of toys, we tend to paint the story of their creation like something akin to a fairy tale, where... Many of these businessmen are likened to Geppetto, bringing life to a creation that magically creates joy for children throughout the world. But, like any other business, such myths often simplify and romanticize the story of any corporation's rise to success. And let me tell you, Emma, Mattel is no exception to this, as it has had many numerous controversies and moments of upheaval and exploitation, a number of which can be found at the feet of one of its founders, Ruth Handler. The purpose of this episode is not to vilify a human who lived a complicated life, you know, like every other human, but in looking at the way that Handler has run Mattel and Barbie, I feel like we can gain some insight into some of the shortcomings of such a person and by extension, her creation. Anyway, are you are you trying to tell me that like CEOs are bad hmm. sometimes? I, I I know this is a big old pipe and hot take, but yes, Emma. Mm-hmm. Ruth was born Ruth Mariana Moskowitz in Denver, Colorado, on November fourth, nineteen sixteen. She was the youngest of ten in a family of Jewish immigrants. Her father Jacob initially fled Poland in nineteen oh seven before being joined by his wife Ida and their children two years later. And when reading through the biographies about this, a very startling detail I found was that pretty much all the biographies made a large note on just how physically strong Jacob Moskowitz was. There are multiple quotes about people saying how he is the strongest person I've ever seen. Some stories talk of him pulling a Jean Valjean and picking up a whole cart. Yeah, I'm about, I'm about to say, was he like a, like one of those guys where everyone just like, yeah, that was just a big guy? Yeah, pretty much. Beams picking up carts? Well, he was mostly noted for being a railroad worker. See, the Moskowitzes were one of many Jewish families that had fled Poland following the Russian partition of the country in 1905, which nowadays... This is a time period of history that people really like to mythologize as this period of the American dream being brought to life by all these hardworking immigrants pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to make this country better, which often ignores the virulent anti-Semitism and xenophobia that such families met oftentimes once they arrived at the good old U.S. of A. This is a sentiment that when reading through a number of biographies about Ruth Handler and the story of Mattel and Barbie, a lot of those biographers tend to replicate this reading of history when retelling her life, which is a sentiment best demonstrated in this rather uncritical book titled uh, Barbie Developer, Ruth Handler, written by Lee Slater, which before I read this quote, um, I do want to note that I don't want to give too much shade to Slater. Uh, this appears to be a children's book that is mostly written as like kind of an educational piece that, I mean, I, I'm not too wild at some of her editorial decisions and how she retells Handler's life, but they are at least understandable to a slight degree. 
Quote, Reaching for the American dream required a lot of hard work. Jacob and Ida were very busy working and raising Ruth's siblings. So, they sent Ruth to live with their eldest child, Sarah. She lived with her older sister? Yep, her older sister, who by this time was already married. I couldn't find much of a reason why for them doing this. I assume the father was probably working most of the time, and if they have like 10 other children, maybe she would just was just like, I just can't, I don't have the time to take care of all 10 of yeah, these children at once or something like that. That does seem to be the primary reason because uh, Jacob Moskowitz was working on the railroads that were being like constructed all around the United States. So he wasn't really home in Denver super often compared to Ida. So it, it's somewhat understandable that this might happen. But I don't know. I do find the painting of this a little bit strange. Quote, Sarah's husband, Louis Greenwald, owned a drugstore. And when Ruth was 10 years old, she began working in the drugstore. The job introduced Ruth to the idea of merchandising. The skill she learned in the drugstore would later help her sell millions of Barbie dolls. So you see, gas station attendants, if you just work really hard, maybe one day you too will be Yeah, Bezos. it's... I don't know. Again, I know that this was a book that Slater wrote. It's as part of a series of different children's books that tells about the creation of different toys and their creators. I mean, but really what is more American than whitewashing history <laughs> for children? Yeah, I mean, I know I understand why they might want to like make some of this a little bit more innocent sounding, but I feel like child labor, that's one of those things that most people can universally ought to be able to be like, hey, kind of sucks that, you know, this kid had to like find a job. Well, this is like the 1920s, right? So, well, I mean, yeah, it would have been 1926. If, if you're a kid, like, you know, a child laborer during that time, I'm, I guess the working at a convenience store would be a lot more preferable to working at like the garment yep, factory. Yep, I am, you know, I so. am loath to remember that one particular scene in uh, Samantha, an American girl, which, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I I guess that's fair. Well, I will say that uh, Slater's biography doesn't go into much more detail about her childhood than that. We do know that by all accounts, uh, as detailed in other biographies, Ruth treated Sarah more or less like her mother and would consistently be on the record of always wanting her approval, which... I find that a little bit sweet, but another biography titled Barbie and Ruth, written by Robin Gerber, paints a rather interesting picture of Ruth's childhood, especially when it comes to her relationship with other kids. Quote, Ruth was very bored by the things that other children found interesting. She thought that many other girls were sissies and that girl talk was stupid. She saw herself as a tomboy who preferred the athletic games of boys. Boys love me, and I love boys, she said. <laughs> Girls excluded her from their intimate girl talk sessions, and when she was included, she felt awkward. 
So she she was a, a not like the other girls type. She was pulling N-log shit like in the 1920s, which considering that this was a time just, period of like, you know, the flappers and suffragettes and all that kind of stuff. I find that very interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting considering how like Barbie now is seen as such so much like kind of like a stereotypical like girly girl thing to yeah be into and you know so it's notable that even slater's rather sanitized version of the biography does make a point of noting that hansler never played with dolls growing up kind of mirrors the sentiment that some people nowadays direct towards barbie eventually uh ruth mosco as she would later shorten it from moskowitz met and eventually dated a boy named Elliot Handler while attending high school, which was apparently a large point of contention between Ruth and Sarah, who felt that the poor child of Ukrainian Jewish immigrants was a poor marriage candidate for her sister. There is a whole chapter in Robin Gerber's biography just talking about their romance and how much Sarah hated Elliot and just thinking that he was just like this poor, dirty good-for-nothing kid. So he was a Ukrainian-Jewish immigrant, and they were Polish-Jewish immigrants, but they thought he was below their immigrant Yeah, because by this point in time, by the time she got into high school, it was the Great Depression. And with the lifting of Prohibition, uh, Sarah's husband, Louis, was able to make bank off of the now newly legal sale of alcohol. So they were able to... Uh, oh, so they so they were like new yeah, money they then, were they so. were still middle class. Yeah. They weren't like you know full on bougie elite. But considering that uh, Handler was a poor light fixture creator whose family was also kind of struggling, that was the primary point of contention. Okay. To give them some credit, the two would remain quite committed to one another, even after Ruth graduated from high school and left for Hollywood to, no joke, work as a stenographer for Paramount Pictures. There was even a story of her sneaking Elliot onto the set of a Shirley Temple movie that they were filming, and... What do, what do movies need stenographers for? It, it was that kind of, like, on the ground, like... Hey, Tuts, we need to get you down on the set of Reef of Madness. <laughs> Whatever Louis J. Gainsner has to say, we need to have that stuff written down. Throughout her time of working as a stenographer, uh, Elliot would come and visit every now and then. And eventually, Sarah came down and told her sister that, hey, we need your help back in Denver. And you can't see that handler guy anymore. And... Uh, Ruth listened to her sister and briefly broke things off with Elliot and moved back to Denver to help out in the store. However, being apart kind of made the two of them realize that they really liked each other still, and eventually, going against her sister's wishes, Ruth and Elliot married on June 26, 1938, and would begin a new life in Los Angeles. You know what? Good for them. Yeah, I find that story kind of sweet. It was reportedly too, Sarah ended up coming around on uh, Louis as a kid and mostly just consider- seeing just how devoted the two of them were. And you, you I don't know, have I, a good old like defying the odds, defying the wishes of the family type 
romance deals, you know, and get going for what you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. Although apparently their two families outside of like Sarah and stuff hated each other because these were two families from different parts of the old country. And I, I don't know too much about the history of the Jewish communities in Poland and uh, Ukraine, but I have to imagine that considering some of the history with some of that stuff, there might have been some contention because both of those places are not great for Jewish people. Pretty much any place in the world wasn't great for Jewish people historically. The two did eventually get married and they would head off to Los Angeles once again. All right. So once the two got into Los Angeles, uh, Elliot would begin to study industrial design at the Arts Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. And... Ruth would return to her old job working at Paramount. But while studying at the Art Center College of Design, Elliot learned about this new design capabilities of this strange miracle material called polymethylmethylcryate, which we now know as lucite and plexiglass. Looking back on the history of this time period is always so interesting because they these these things that we now kind of see as like a pestilence like just i don't know how to feel reading about the idea of like step right up and see the new miracle material of plastic that can be molded into whatever shape and will retain its shape for even longer than a human life and well, I say this is about as exciting as when they discovered that aluminum oh, foil yes. ah Come along, kids. Let's go see that smoking robot down at the World Pavilion. Also, make sure to drink your cocaine. Yeah, yeah. So, using this strange new material uh, synthesized out of petroleum, uh, Ruth ended up actually ditching her job at Paramount a second time so that she can join her husband's new business venture in creating furniture and jewelry out of new material, which, man... Man, to be one of those people who buy uh, plastic jewelry in the 1930s. Hey, toots, <laughs> I, I think you're the bee's knees. Have this lovely matte gray necklace. But if they invent, had not invented plastic jewelry, how would we keep the spirit Halloween's uh, afloat? Oh, yes. Future? I mean, you know, you got to make those sacrifices for pro progress. Even if it does result in a really crappy anniversary gift. They are, so they're working at this new company, and they also face a second change when Ruth ends up giving birth to the handler's first daughter, Barbara. And they would have their second child, Kenneth, about four years later. And despite being a brand new mother, Ruth would still work at her at Elliot's company, and she would be handling all of the marketing and sales for all of their new products while Elliot managed the design aspects, which it's interesting to see, like, a husband and wife be, like, a business partner duo. Like, that... I, I can't really think of, like, any other ex examples of this that come to my mind. I'm sure there were plenty of examples of this, but it was somewhat rare to see, like... A woman in those kinds of like executive kind of positions i mean which... it's just kind of interesting to, to think about because you know as much as as you can kind of deride the whole like kind of like 
female CEO type thing. It is, like, important to note, I think, that how much women were just kind of, like, barred from having any kind of, like, financial power for the longest time. Because I'm thinking, like, this was, like, what, the 1930s? Yeah, yeah, this was still in... So, like, like, you know, this was before women were, like, allowed to, like, have yeah, bank accounts. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was so. actually going to note that. But, so them having, like, a kind of equitable partnership in this business is kind of a rarity. I don't think that's, like, you know, yeah, and, worth nothing. And it's just... from all accounts, like, the two did remain married for the rest of their life and did seem to have a decently healthy marriage, which, considering the historical factors of 1950s marriages, I find that very interesting. Well, you know, Ruth was allowed to have, like, a... A life outside of just being, you know, watching over the kids. Although I'm thinking, how kind of how rich were they well, at this point? Not very rich initially. During this time period, uh, Elliot was asked by Ruth to change his name to Izzy, partially because during this entire time period, there was just a crazy rising tide in anti-Semitism throughout the United States. You know, this was the same time as. Uh, universities were barring admissions to jewish people henry ford was publishing the dearborn independent where he would consistently spread uh anti-semitic propaganda uh ford claimed that jewish banks caused world war one the kkk was becoming extra powerful uh governor clarence morley elected uh in 1924 was like, hired a bunch of clan members as his officials. So, you know, it wasn't great initially. Uh, so because of that, like, the name Elliot apparently was too Jewish. So he he went by the name Izzy for a while. And what ended up happening is they, uh, they ended up ma- living in an apartment which... God, Emma, this is going to make you so have some feelings, but they bought an apartment on uh, 5142nd and a half Clinton Avenue in Hollywood, and their rent was only $37.50 per month. And how much would that be for inflation? Oh my God, $789.35 today. For a, for a, an apartment with a garage, huh? Yep. In Los Angeles. In Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, mm. <sighs> must be nice must be nice yeah. yeah but as mentioned uh you asked earlier how successful they were initially uh not a lot you know it, it turns out that um it turns out not a lot of people want their furniture to be made out of plastic you know as novel as this new crazy plastic material is like you don't want People don't want to be sitting on a plastic couch, you know? Put the heater too close to your plastic table, and now you got a melted table, you know, so... Exactly, yeah. I should note, they were mostly specializing in plexiglass material stuff, but even on plexiglass, it's not, like, a particularly luxurious kind of material. It's very... It's good for, like, a lot of things, you know, like aquarium windows or, like you know, high-pressure gauges, things like that. But, like, for a table, it, it's not... It, it's not gonna look super good. But 
the two, they were able to get enough success, enough to take on a partner, a guy named Harold Matt Matson. So I don't know why Harold used Matt as his nickname. I guess that's just because of its last name. But yeah, uh, so Izzy and Matt would combine the first names to create a new name for their company, Mattel Industries. So Matt plus Elliot. So it's called Mattel because some dude named Harold thought it would be funny if people called him Matt Max And teamed up with the dude who called himself Izzy, who was actually named Elliot. Elliot. Yeah, yeah. Although I feel like Elliot's reasoning for the nickname might have been a little bit more... I don't want to say understandable because uh, that's not a great reason. Well, it's, uh, it's understandable as you can understand why he did it. It's uh, sad exactly. that he had to do it. Or he felt like he needed to do Yeah, it, but know. the newly formed Mattel would have its share of mixed successes in its early years. So, yeah, not a lot of people are super into the plastic furniture or the plastic jewelry. But they did get a little bit of luck during World War II. Because if you remember from that especially accurate documentary, Molly, an American Girl, we have to... They had to contribute for the war because it was super important. Um, God, that movie. But yeah, ra- throughout the country, materials like metal and fabric had to halt production for anything that was considered a non-essential product. And one of those products that was in that category were toys. It was pretty commonplace during this time period for doll furniture to be made out of things like wood, metal, and other kinds of material that is now being rationed. And because of that, uh, Mattel was able to step in and make a little profit making their... filling in the demand for new toys with this miraculous plastic material. And because they achieved enough success they ended up deciding to completely pivot their business to toy manufacturing. Interesting. Now I'm just imagining like the, the people going door to door being like, we must confiscate your daughter's a dollhouse mm. for the war. I mean, there were legit like whole propaganda campaigns they were doing back then of like, hey kids, you may like that little robot toy or that BB gun, but Uncle Sam needs that metal. Everyone's got to fight to, well... Let's be honest, they, they would use, like, uh, Japanese, anti-Japanese sentiment for the propaganda, more so than the anti-Nazi yeah, sentiment. Yeah, it's probably, it probably a good thing that uh, someone came in and, you know, kind of stopped the, the Nazis from doing yeah, what they were doing. So, uncontroversial statements made on the pink Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah. They ended up getting a little bit of some of that success and uh, pivoting to toy sales, which ended up being a really good move on their part because once World War II ended, a whole bunch of people uh, ended up coming back to the United States. You know, the guys were coming back from the war, the women were coming back from the factories, and, you know, people were wanting to celebrate in the old-fashioned way. The really, really old fashion way and uh yeah the united states was coincidentally suddenly seeing a massive boom in births throughout the country and suddenly the 
Yeah, maybe some kind of kind of baby yeah. boom. Yeah, I might say this little baby boom yeah. that I think will have no long-lasting repercussions upon future American culture. Nope. Initially, uh, shifting to this new model of toy success, the handlers first started. Uh, the first major success that Mattel actually ended up having with the rise of this new invigorated toy market was a toy called, are you ready for this, Emma? Yep. The Yook-A-Doodle. What is, what is this? I'm scared to find out. So the Yook-A-Doodle was a plastic miniature ukulele that was marketed off of America's increased fascination with Hawaiian culture after the kingdom was overthrown by the U.S. military in 1893. Oh. Yeah. Let me, let me just. So, uke, where, where does the adoodle It doesn't, come it does it's just like a plastic ukulele. You know those cheap, crappy, like, fake guitars that you would get in, like, a dollar store that, like, did not have any... Like, would not hold a tune whatsoever. Yep, yep. I assume these things were nope, very fine and that was actually kind of intentional in the design. See, I went down a weird rabbit hole with the Yuka Doodle just because of the name. Um, so, the handlers specifically marketed the Yuka Doodle after this guy named Arthur Godfrey, who was this big radio personality at the time. He hosted this program called the Arthur Godfrey Talent Scout, which was this weird, basically American idol, but for the radio in the 1940s, where he would just trot out random people to try and do a singing competition with the promise of prize money, but would often kind of ridicule them. Yeah, so, yep, that, yep that's just been oh, a yeah. thing forever. It has been a thing forever, but Godfrey was really really popular and one of the weird recurring like skits i guess you would call it that he would do on the program is he would take out a badly tuned ukulele and just like randomly just start playing it just in the middle of the program you gotta you gotta admit though that's like that's like a classic bit i feel like someone you i could see someone like fucking jimmy fallon pulling that shit nowadays uh, it's almost too too quirky for Jimmy Fallon. I feel like I feel like you could have like a like a good like Twitch st- streamer kind of incorporate that into their bit, and then like it could become like a thing with their fan base. There, that's like uh, me when it's you could do. Oh my god! Yeah, let me like see that. them. You could doodle emotes, guys. Oh my god! Yeah. Every time I get a victory royale, <laughs> it's you could doodle time. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, something like yep, that. I can see it now. But so yeah. They decided, based off of, like, this success on this show, they ended up making this toy, which basically was recreating, like, Godfrey's ukulele. Like, from what I can tell, uh, Garth Godfrey just, like, took, a, like, an authentic Hawaiian ukulele and just, like, made it out of tune. So, this is one of those cases where it's like, oh, see, kids, it's fine if the... If it sounds like garbage, that's that's the point. Which, man, man, I feel like that's, yeah, I feel like that says a lot about like the kind of standards for toys in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. You gotta you gotta think though, like they were evolving from like the 
stick and hoop. So, you know, I, can I suppose so. So Elliot had produced a couple of prototypes for the Yuka Doodle and Ruth set about looking for a distributor. She eventually landed upon the Carlisle Brothers, a brother company, like a family company of independent toy distributors who were pretty eager to help Mattel. It was set to be like a pretty lucrative contract. And yeah, everything was all set. But three months before the March 1947 Toy Fair, which was this big annual event that was being held in New York City, uh, where the Carlisle brothers were set to debut the Yuka Doodle manufactured by Mattel, Ruth Handler decided to show off some samples of the Yuka Doodle to Butler Brothers, which, despite what the name were, would imply, were not a big family company, but were instead a Chicago-based wholesale giant that was known for acting as middlemen for toy manufacturers across the company. And they had this reputation for being unscrupulous jobbers who would routinely cut out competition by uh, offering extremely low prices to different companies. Okay. Now, Emma... How do you think uh, the Carlisle brothers felt when they heard, uh, when Ruth told them that she decided that she was going to go into business with the Butler brothers to produce the Yuka Doodle? I assume they were not too happy. They were pretty pissed, because uh, I want to stress, Mattel had already signed a contract with the Carlisles to produce the Yuka Doodles. They made zero effort in communicating this with Carlisle's. They only decided to tell them once their deal with the Butler brothers was completely finalized. Mm, you gotta love some shady underhandedness. Yeah, so it's at this point where I briefly want to quote Robin Gerber's biography of her again. Quote, in her autobiography, Ruth claimed she offered to pay the Carlisle's a commission on sales she had made that shipped into their territory a tacit admission that she had overstepped in cutting her own deal. Butler Brothers was a major, major target for the sale force that she had just hired, and her action no doubt undermined the Carlisle's faith in her. Although she might have negotiated a more lucrative deal with the Butler, Ruth insisted that she had done the right thing. I think we were very wise. I think the Butler order got us going. She never acknowledged that by cutting her own deal, she was angling to keep the commission for herself. And the incident was a very early indication that Ruth loathed admitting mistakes and had a strong sense of her own, uh, resitude. She was also very protective of the bottom line. End quote. Hey, you know, sometimes, sometimes to be a girl boss, you gotta make the hard decisions. Yeah, I mean... And is screwing over one company in favor of a different company really the biggest sin? I mean, considering, like, some of the other kinds of uh, company shenanigans happening in the 1950s, it is unfortunate that the answer is no, but, you know, still not great. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the whole deal with Butler ends up going off, uh, and... It ends up popping off like gangbusters uh, once it debuts at the 1947 uh, Toy Fair. And by selling the product to Butler Brothers, she made it easy for competitors to get one of her toys and copy it, though. 
And it this ends up kind of leading into a couple of future problems for them. Because that's the thing with plastic toys. Once you make the plastic or get at your hand on a couple of the molds or something, it's pretty easy to make your own knockoffs of them. A fact that yeah. Mattel will continually okay. deal with for the rest of their existence. Yeah, isn't that how most like bootleg toys work? You just take like the plastic model of Spider-Man and like make him green and then you got your own toy, you know? Yeah, pretty much. And copycat Yookadoodles were popping off all over the country, which it it wasn't great, but over the next decade, Mattel would sell eleven million Yookadoodles, which in its first year yielded $28,000 in profits, which that would be $372,000 in today's money. Okay. So, and that's in profits, too. As you can imagine, uh, things were going decently well, but there would still be a bit of contention now because Barbara and Kenneth are getting older and her duties as mother became a lot more... Uh, involved and soon as mattel grew as a business it became a lot more complicated and they ended up having to hire a, lot, a couple of more members uh too many that i'm not going to uh list here but it still ended up yielding enough of a profit where by 1949 they were netting sales of 42 uh, $4.2 million, which in today's money would have been uh, over $55 million. Nice. Yeah, yeah, which... Uh, so, and Ruth was like 34 at the time. Mother of two, 34 years old. She and her... Like, she and Elliot doing pretty good. And in any of these... Um, in any sort of like interviews that they would do which Emma you might be shocked to hear there weren't a whole lot of like there wasn't a whole lot of demand for interviewing some toy manufacturers in the 1950s uh, and 1940s but in in the interviews that they did give the couple would consistently talk about trying to emphasize a balance between their work and home lives uh quote we work 24 hours a day elliot told a magazine interviewer adding we worry 24 hours a day in that same article elliot described is described as quote the brains behind the creative end of the business while his lovely life as in so many families sees to it that the bacon gets into the handler icebox yeah, maybe a little bit condescending there. Yeah, like, especially since Ruth... Like, she's the, he's the, the one with the ideas, and she's the one who makes sure the house is clean. Yeah, which completely ignores the fact that Ruth was pretty consistently and vocally against doing housework. She yeah. often, like... I mean, she would take care of some housework, but... She did it with a lot of hired help. They were wealthy enough to, like, afford, like, maids and nannies so that, like, Ruth could still work her job. She's just a successful business lady with maybe, you know, absolutely probably maybe some, uh, uh, 
I'm not a perfect person, but yeah, I don't know. I'll just we'll have to see. Well, this next little bit. Throughout the 40s and the early 50s, Mattel was gaining some success. You know, those profits aren't nothing to sneeze at, but compared to other large-scale toy manufacturers like Kenner, who was basically the big name in terms of plastic toy manufacturing, um, Mattel was still relatively small potatoes, but this all changed in 1955 when ABC Television was seeking advertisers for a new program called the Mickey Mouse Club. The same, the same vehicle that gave us uh, Justin Timberlake. Well, this is the early, like, 1950s Mickey Mouse Club, too. Emma, have you ever actually watched an episode of the Mickey Mouse Club? I don't believe so. It is wild. It's mostly, like, a kiddie kind of variety show where there would be, like, having, like, the kids sing, like, some songs, do some milk toast kind of sketches. Also having ludicrous, ludicrous levels of cross-promotion with them Disney properties. Oddly enough, not on Disney Plus, though. They have that, they have, uh, they don't have that on the Disney Plus, but they have, uh, oh god, what was that one, that one movie? Uh, god, I used, I used to know this, why can't I remember it? I like, there's a point when I was, like, forcing all my it's friends not, to watch it's it. It's not Mac and me, uh, Fuzz yeah. Bucket. Fuzz yep. Bucket! Like, a classic. A true classic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to quote... It, I mean, it's weird. In early 2020, like, the first week of the Mickey Mouse Club and its first spin number of serials were on Disney+, Plus, but for some reason, it is currently missing. Like, that's literally what the Wikipedia for the Mickey Mouse Club says. For some reason, it is currently missing. For some reason. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, Someone get on, like, Defunct Land. Get on that one. Um, yeah, you, you gotta find the John Lennon episode of Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah, well, different thing. But yeah, so it was an interesting thing. Because ABC was in a weak financial position and because Disney was also not doing crazy great financially because they were putting so much funding towards, like, the construction of Disneyland, they were in a, they were in a pretty precarious position because up to that time, toy companies, including Mattel, bought television time only in 10 to 12 minutes leading up to Christmas. Wholesalers and nationwide stores like Sears were the main advertising targets, and trade journals were used to reach them. But, and television advertisers were pricey. Like, uh, the first TV ad was Hasbro's Mr. Potato Head, which, at the time, uh, it cost about like $150,000 a year to do TV commercials. But because uh, the Mickey Mouse Club was a little bit more desperate for the funds, they were willing to take a chance on some smaller people like Mattel. And they ended up... Uh, producing a couple of different other toys. Like, by this point, they had also produced a number of, like, other toys, including the... The Burp Gun. Which, Classic. Which was a replica of a paratrooper's military machine gun, which could fire uh, 50 shots with special Mattel greeny stickum caps 
Yeah, I don't know. But apparently, like, the rapid firing made it sound like an extended burping sound. So, yeah, yeah. You know what? You, you can see the appeal. You can see why it appealed. Yeah, yeah. And there was one little snag with the Disney deal. Payments could not be canceled for a full year of advertising. Once, unlike other advertisers who had stipulations in their contract where they were welcome to cancel it if the show wasn't being successful, Disney made it so that they were fully committed to a full year, which meant that if the show ended up failing, that could be a pretty big problem for Mattel. But thanks to that Disney magic, the Mickey Mouse Club ended up being a major success. And with Mattel being their proprietary sponsor and only sponsor, that ended up putting a lot of attention on their toys. And their sales ended up going by a large margin. And it is at this point where, following some of that success, the handlers end up taking a pretty famous trip to Europe, where they ended up coming up with their next little idea by staring at a sexy-looking pinup doll. So, join us next time when we discuss more about Barbie's precarious opening and some of the other stuff that uh, Ruth Handler got as she ended up getting up there and reaching her success, because, uh, yeah, a couple of... Th- Emma, this this story goes in some directions. I can't wait. I I love hearing uh, the weird, messed up stuff that old-timey people would get up to. It's my favorite thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But, yeah, I think that's going to about do that. So, thank you once again, everyone, for tuning in for another episode of The Pink Owl. We hope you're enjoying this little change in material we promise we'll do we're going to be doing more episodes about different doll movies soon but i find it very emblematic of a lot of some of the dilemmas you end up seeing when it comes to discussing barbie yeah all i can say is uh stream fuzz bucket on disney plus okay it's only like 40 minutes long oh my god it's, it's, a good it's time. such a bad no listener don't don't do that i i don't want to be sued for the podcast equivalent of malpractice yeah yeah so yeah it's it no, then you, again you, considering you, you this industry that i feel like there would probably be a couple of other people that wouldn't be uh getting sued for that first but i I feel like anyone can get a little something out of Fuzz Bucket. Uh, for better or worse. But yeah, uh, that's going to about do it for us today. So thank you once again, everyone, for joining us for, for another episode of The Pink Isle. We'll be returning once again to the next, to uh, part two. I don't know, this might end up being like a part, like a two or three parter, depending on some of the stuff, because there's... There's a lot of interesting things to cover, but until then, Emma, you got a Twitter at EmmaCory9. Say, should anyone really be admitting to be s- still being on Twitter these days? Probably not, but I, I, <laughs> I, I want to be able to plug you yet, out of appreciation for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
there's mm-hmm. that. But as for us, if you enjoy what we do here on the Pink Isle, please let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on these historical episodes. And yeah, talking about some other kinds of stuff. So uh, if you want to follow us on the Dreadbird app, you can follow us at Pink Isle Pod. Um, I still need to get on making a new Tumblr blog for the Pink Isle. I feel like we could have a lot of fun on Tumblr, Emma. Just because there's already so many like great Barbie blogs there that I already follow and just reblog as it yeah, is. Yeah, we really got to reach out to that Tumblr demographic. Definitely. Uh, but also, you can. So if you want to, if you want to send us a message as to who your uh, Barbie Blorbo is, oh we'd uh, <laughs> we'd love to hear it. Sure, sure. And you can do that by uh, reaching out, out to us on Twitter or emailing us at pinkalpod at gmail.com. And additionally, we appreciate any ratings and reviews on your podcast platform of choice. And yeah, as for me, yeah. uh, you can find all my other stuff at YouTube.com slash Henry Kathman, where you'll find all my video essays and things like that. And everything that I do is supported on Patreon.com slash Henry Kathman, where you can access a bunch of neat old stuff for just $1. So, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this. And I think uh, I'm going to be very interested in seeing how you react to these later developments in the Barbie story, Emma. Oh, I love a good twist. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to build it up too much because I I do want to know, like, in the world of, like, scumbag business people, like, the handlers are definitely not the worst. Heck, even in just, like, the toy industry, like, there are way more people. But I do feel this need to just, like, note that, like, I don't know, with with any kind of, like, business on a scale like Mattel, it's always good to be able to, like, keep in perspective of, like, you know, it's a company. Their primary goal is not to just make some of the money, but all the money. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I don't know, it's good to keep that in mind. But, until then, yeah, I think we ought to make, like, I think we ought to make, like, the enterprising individuals of the 1950s and just sniff a whole bunch of asbestos, you know? Just, like, really get it up in there, you know? Follow that enterprising American spirit, you know? Like... Oh, yep. we need to get it some lead paint in there as well. Yeah, get some lead paint, get some of the, some, some Diet Coke with real Coke. Oh, uh, well, nah, by the 50s, those cucks decided to get rid of the cocaine and just switch it out with sugar. We used to be a country. We used to be a country, but at least we could still hold on to sniffing our asbestos while admiring Barbie dolls. <laughs> we'll see you next time.